The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the amazing, wonderful opportunity it is to gather with your house, your people, brothers and sisters, those you brought near through Jesus, Lord, to hear you speak by your Holy Spirit. And that's what this is even now, Lord. It's, it's not because of anything I am or some goodness I have, or it's not because of any of our deserving, but in your grace and you, in your kindness, Lord, as we, as we come together to sit under your word, you speak. So I just ask for help, Lord. Please help me to teach this faithfully and clearly. And I ask for help for everyone listening, myself included, Lord, that we would see Jesus we would know very clearly what you're saying, each one of us, Lord, and that our hearts would respond to trust you, to believe in this glorious gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing through our study in the book of Hebrews. We're starting chapter three today. Last week, obviously, we finished chapter two. And last week, and many of you shared this with me, I felt the same way. Last week was just one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel that you'll ever see. And we saw God's incredible grace for us, right? Grace, undeserved love, love poured out on us we could never deserve. God's incredible grace for us poured out in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're having this deeper look at what it means that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, through whom all things were made, that he took on human flesh for us. So we saw his incredible solidarity with us, that he would, his closeness to us in identifying with us in this way. We, we heard that incredible promise that Jesus is not ashamed to call us, we who trust in him. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We saw that he became like us to come get us, to be with us, to take us where we need to go. It's the perfect Savior. So chapter 2 ended like this, Hebrews two seventeen. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So much there, right? But, but think of those words, had to. That's that idea of this, this is God's perfect plan. This is his way. He's going to bring, as the text said, many children to glory. He had to. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So just think about that. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to be marginalized. He knows what it's like to die. He tasted death. And he did that so that he could come right next to us. Be the perfect captain or savior, author of our salvation. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. His, his heart towards his people is mercy. He's inclined to want to see you in your need and help you. He's faithful. He's, he will never let you down. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. That means substitution. On the cross, he died for your sins. And now because he has suffered when tempted, he's able to help you even today when you're tempted. And just a, an, an amazing picture of the gospel, right? 
So we've heard it. We've heard it. We've heard this incredible news that God would invite you to come near to him despite all your sins through Jesus, the one whom he sent to take on human flesh, live the perfect life, die on the cross, rise from the dead for you. We've heard the gospel. Well, this morning we're in chapter 3. And as it was read, it's a, it's a rich passage, right, with tons, of, tons to consider. There's these thoughts on Moses. There's these reflections on Israelite history from Psalm 95. There's a lot of info in here, but we, with all that info, we don't want to miss what this passage is mainly about, and it's so important. Chapter 3, verse 1 starts with the word, therefore. So you know what that word accomplishes, right? Argument, therefore, this. So... Because you've heard the gospel, therefore, and as we read through this chapter, we see time and time again, the author is emphasizing the importance of how the audience responds to the message of the gospel that they've heard. Do you see what this is about? Last week, it was like, let's see the gospel in great detail. And this week, it's about how are you responding to this gospel that you heard? How are you responding to this gospel that you heard? Uh, and, and moreover, this passage just isn't about how you responded once to the gospel. It's not just about what you did once. You, you went to camp once or you, you prayed a prayer once or whatever you did six months ago. As we'll see when we walk through the passage, he keeps emphasizing the word today. Today. It's always today until Jesus comes back. And, and so the question is not just how have you responded to the gospel? But it's how are you responding to the gospel today? And it's so urgent. How have you been responding to the gospel? How are you responding? That's a question each one of us should ask ourselves. What have I been doing with this gospel that I've heard? And it, it's so urgent because, as we'll see, it's so important. Little is more important. So we're going to go through the whole chapter, chapter 3. I wanted you to see it in the big picture. And we're going to consider how we ought to respond to this message that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. And uh, I think the author here gives us six things to consider as part of that response. Six things. This is how high my respect is for you. I think you can handle six points, not just three points. We're going to see six Things to consider as part of that response because it just builds on itself. It builds on itself. It builds on itself. So we'll, walk, we'll, we'll see those as we go. The first thing, you and I were thinking, okay, how, are, how am I responding today to this message of the gospel, this good news of Jesus? First thing we need to do, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, and those next two words, I hope you're looking in your text. Chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Now, doesn't that seem strange? I mean, what, do we, what do we do every Sunday? We consider Jesus. And Lord willing, you will never hear a sermon from me or from this pulpit that doesn't talk to you about Jesus. Uh, moreover, Hebrews. What's the whole book? What's he been doing? Consider Jesus. And so you might think, well, well we, we did that. This is the whole point. What do you need to keep doing constantly? 
Consider Jesus. We did that last week. Yeah. Consider him again. I did that yesterday. Yeah. Consider him again. Consider Jesus. He's calling for this continual pondering and meditation on Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Consider the gospel. And not just think of him every once in a while, but no, it's, it's more like measure everything in life by him. Like, this is so fundamental and foundational. This is the treasure. This is the anchor. So now this is the guiding light right here, Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And now everything else in life has to answer to that. I want to consider him, and then I want to consider everything else in light of him. And so, friends, this is just so important already. What are you doing with the gospel? Is the gospel something you hear once and say, oh, yeah, I think that's true, stick it in your pocket, and then move on to greater things? Never. In fact, the author, I think, would suggest if that's your... If that's your idea of what Christianity is, you might not actually be a Christian. We are, we are to richly and deeply and continually consider. And this is, a, this is an important encouragement, isn't it? Because if you're like me, I mean, my sinful heart has the spiritual attention, attention span of a puppy. How many passions and hopes were you given this week from news articles and commercials about things to latch yourself onto so what life's, as to what life's about? And so it's, this, it's, a, it's a fight, isn't it? It's a street fight for the heart to keep considering Jesus. Not only do you need to consider him, you need to consider yourself in light of Jesus, in light of what he's done. So verse one again, therefore, holy brothers, you, sh- you who share in a heavenly calling, you're, you're see- you wanna see Jesus so richly that you also see yourself in light of who he is and what he's done. Part of who you are, if you've put your trust in Jesus, is you are holy, You're part of his holy family. You're a holy sister. You're a holy brother. Isn't that amazing? It it speaks to really your incredible dignity that in Jesus Christ, God has sanctified you and brought him to yourself so that brought you to himself so that you'd be a treasured possession of him, of his, to know him and see him and belong to him. Incredible dignity. It's all through Christ. He's the one who's made you holy, with his holiness. So we have incredible dignity. Also, holy brothers and sisters. That means you're incredibly welcome. You're you're so welcome. You're not an outsider looking in after you put your faith in Christ. You're brought so near. You're part of his family, face to face. Consider yourself in light of Jesus. And he says, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. So much here, but it's the the idea that God has had you in mind and he has a plan for your life and where he's going to take you and he has called you to that and ultimately it's heaven. Ultimately, your story is the new city and the author of Hebrews is going to talk about that, chapters 11 to 13. This new city that we long for, where we will one day live. The, The new creation Jesus will build when he returns. And our calling to know him and love him and one another there. That's your future if you're in Christ. It's not this life or nothing. If you're in Christ, if you you see him, you consider him, you consider yourself in light of who he is. You see, oh, your dignity, holy, set apart in Christ. You're, You're welcome, brothers and sisters. Your future called to a heavenly calling. Do you consider Jesus like that? 
Do you take time to ponder on who he is and what he's done and the implications that has on who you are? In your future, consider Jesus. Moreover, the author says, consider the supremacy of Jesus. Now we get to the last half of verse one all the way to verse five. A couple of things to see about the supremacy of Jesus. Uh, the author calls Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. What does that word apostle mean? You're probably thinking of the 12 apostles, maybe. Uh, Jesus sent them out with authority. So, so that's what it means, sent with authority. So the reason we read the New Testament is the message of the apostles. We want, we want to hear what they have said. But this text is telling you that the ultimate apostle is Jesus. He's the one sent with all authority. And he's the apostle of something. Did you see that? He's sent with something. He's the apostle of our confession. What does that mean? Your confession, the use of this word here, is getting at what you believe most deeply and hold to be most true and most precious. It's like this is what you cling to. This defines your world to you. This defines you. And the apostle, the one sent with authority to communicate the confession, is Jesus. He has come with all authority communicating himself. He is our confession. This part of the glory of his incarnation. He's the word made flesh communicating himself, he who is your hope, your confession. He's the ultimate apostle. He's supreme in that. Moreover, he's the high priest of your confession. The, the writer of this book is going to spend chapters on the priesthood of Jesus. We'll leave that for later in detail. But just to say in general, the priest is the one who makes a bridge, right? Between those who can't get close to God and God himself. And so the priest must be fitting for God's use, right with God, and the, and the priest must be able to connect with and, and serve the people. And so Jesus, he's the perfect priest. And in that way, in his perfect life, and the way he gave himself up as the sacrifice on the cross and rose from the dead, he's now the priest of your confession. What this means is he has not only communicated your confession, he has accomplished your confession. He actually did it for you. He lived the perfect life so that as you trust in him, you're holy and righteous. He died for your sins so that you are forgiven through trust in him. You're welcome. He rose from the dead so that you are adopted. You're, you're seated with Christ, the New Testament says. You have Christ. So he, here's this confession. All my hope, I want to I see and consider Jesus. I want to see who I am in light of him. And then I look at him again, and I see he's the one that's communicated this in his very coming, in his teaching, and he's the one who's accomplished this for me in his priesthood. It's just this idea that you have everything that you need right here in Jesus. Everything that you need. And the way this works in the context of this book, right? We remember this is a marginalized group of Jewish Christians facing persecution and trial because of their trust in Christ. And so there is a temptation and influence to leave him. And, and here's the tension of the book. If you're not continually looking at Jesus, 
There's a Satan who tempts you. There's a sinful inclination in your own heart. There's a very distracting and seductive world out there. If you're not continually looking at Jesus and seeing how much better he is than anything else, you'll drift. You'll drift. You'll drift away. So you've got to see again. And then when you see his supremacy, that just shines light in the darkness. And all these competitors to Christ, oh, a different philosophy, different religious teacher, different hope, different confession, different sort of ethics, different anything, anything that's not Christ, a counterfeit Christ, the more you see Jesus, you'll see the counterfeit and go, that won't take care of me. That's not good enough. I've got to have Jesus himself. Consider Jesus, consider Jesus. All right, at this point, the author brings up Moses. Did you see? Jesus, verse two, he's faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. So, you know, I don't know about you, but when I'm studying a text like this and it feels like a new idea is just parachuted out of nowhere, how many of you, you read Hebrews one, you read Hebrews two, you got the beginning of Hebrews three, and you're like, I wish he would talk about Moses. Did anyone have that thought? Uh, and, and so you're like, well, why, why did you do that? When you read your Bible, that's a great question. Keep asking that question. Why did you do that? Why did he bring up Moses here? Well, I think there's two main reasons. Number one, the recipients of this book, as we've said, are tempted to leave their confession of Jesus as the Christ and go back to trust in the Mosaic law alone. So their, their background is they're religious Jews, and of course, Moses is a massive figurehead of that system. He, sh- he should be. But their temptation is to leave Christ for Moses so they can still have the Bible, they can still have the law, and this way they're not marginalized by the Jewish community or persecuted by the Greco-Roman one. And so the author does need to talk about how Jesus is supreme over Moses. Second, he's going to make a point with Psalm 95 that's going to last two chapters. And part of understanding how that psalm works is you have to have the idea of Moses in your head and how that worked. So he's bringing in Moses. It's all a part of his description about how Jesus is supreme. Let's look at what he says about Moses just briefly. Verse 5, Moses is faithful in God's house as a servant. God's house. What does that illustrate? I think here the author is talking about God's congregation, God's people. I'm sure, actually. He's talking about God's people, God's house. And, and that's, that's just the dream, right? That's a biblical dream, that he would dwell with us and we with him. He would be our God and we would be his people. And that's, that's God's people, Old Testament, New Testament, God's house. And, and the author here says, Moses was faithful in God's house. So, true or false, Moses had to be saved from his sins. True. Uh, True or false, Moses was faithful but flawed. True. And he's a servant in the house. He served faithfully in that house. Praise God for Moses. Praise God for what God did through Moses. But there's something very very curious here. Look at the end of verse 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant And look at those next two words. To do what? To testify. So think about this with me. Moses served the house by doing what? Testifying. What's it mean to testify? 
give witness to something, proclaim something. And what was he to testify of? Testify to the things that were to be spoken later. This is amazing. If you know your Bible at all, I mean, think of all the things the author of Hebrews could have pointed out about Moses that made him notable. He represented God before Pharaoh. He led the people through the wilderness. He received the law. That's not what he mentions here explicitly. He says, he says the main thing about Moses was to testify of the things that were to be spoken of later. What does that mean? You know what Jesus said to his opponents in John chapter 5. They wanted to say that they could follow God, following Moses, and Jesus came and said, I am the Christ. Look what Jesus said to them. John 5, 46. If you believed Moses, you would what? You would believe me. For he, who? Moses, wrote of me, Jesus says. Moses wrote of Jesus. Moses' way to serve the house was to get the house ready for Jesus, the builder of the house, the cornerstone of the house. And so we see that Jesus is faithful in an entirely different category than Moses. Jesus is the sinless one. He's faithful over God's house as a son. Verses 4 to 5 says, The builder of the house deserves more glory than the house. So the idea is that God, is, who is the sovereign builder of all things, he is building his house, his people, and we've seen who's, who's the, the captain of that, who goes and saves the people. Who's, who's the author of the salvation, who dies for their sins and brings them near? Who's the priest? It's Jesus. And so his point is, Jesus is infinitely superior to Moses. So much better than Moses. And that means leaving Jesus to go back to Moses would be like backing down a one-way street you've already driven. You ever been caught going the wrong way down a one-way street? That's what it's like to go back to the Mosaic Law without Jesus. In fact, the Bible is a one-way street, isn't it? Where's it going? Jesus. Jesus. So all, all that's to wrap up. The, the, first, the first way you're supposed to respond to the gospel. We're watching the author of Hebrews do it. He's pushing us to do it. What's the first thing you need to do? Consider Jesus. Keep considering him. Consider him as supreme. See yourself in the light of who he is and what he's done. Second way to respond to the gospel. Consider your boast. I think verse six sums up one to five, makes it very practical. Look at verse 6. And we are, what? We are his house. Who's the we? It's the people who trust themselves to Christ. Right? Have you repented of your sins and trusted yourself to the gospel? We are his house. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> you could just ponder this for a moment. Is it true that we right here all our flaws, all our foolishness, whoever we are today, that we, those who trust Christ, want to sit under his word, want to worship the Father through him. Is it true that we are his house? Yes. We're one small picture of God's house together because we look to Christ, because we trust in him. 
But that does take us to that, that one word, doesn't it? We are his house if. If. And now the author draw, drops something on you that is really the point of this whole chapter. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Are you a Christian? How do you know? There's a lot of ways to answer that, a lot of biblical ways. One danger here is that you look back to one thing you believed or did one time a long time ago. And the author here is looking to what you're doing today and what you're going to do in the future. And so the way you know you're a real Christian is if you keep enduring and holding fast to the gospel. We are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So this is, this is the second way we need to respond. Consider your boast. Consider your boast. So the author of Hebrews says, hold fast your confidence. That word is something that you're explicitly happy about. It's like a cheerful boldness. It, it's, a, it's another way of saying you're not ashamed at all in any way. And so it's a cheerful, bold, courageous happiness in the reality that you have Jesus. you got to hold fast to that. Hold fast your confidence in Jesus. He says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting. What do you think of that word, boasting? You ever been caught guilty of the, the wrong kind of boasting? Uh, you're all hyped up on yourself and... You get humbled. But your heart is always looking for a boast. The, the boast of your heart is like, what makes you significant? What gives you promises of a happy future? What tells you that you've made it? Your boast. Who is our boast to be as Christians? It's Jesus. Paul says this in Galatians 6.14. Far be it from me to boast... Except, what's Paul look to to boast? Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Another way to say that is, the cross of Christ is so sweet to Paul that he no longer has any interest in any counterfeits or substitutions to that cross. It's as if all the promises of this world are dead to me compared to what I have in the reality that Jesus came and died and rose for me. That is my boast. And so you have to consider your heart now. We're considering Jesus and his supremacy in a thousand ways. And now this call to me, to you. Do you see how he said you have to hold fast to your boast? We're kind, of, we're kind of digging into what makes faith genuine. Isn't it possible to have kind of a mental agreement with a set of facts about Jesus? Do you believe the Bible? Yeah. Do you believe the Son of God? Yeah. Do you believe in perfect life? Yeah. Death, resurrection? Yeah, yeah. Isn't it possible to believe that's true and not have your heart boast in it in any way, shape, or form? It's horribly possible. It's commonly possible. 
And so as you consider Jesus, you then have to consider your own boast. What do I love and feel about him now that I've considered him? And is he better to me than anything so that I see everything else in light of him and everything else in life needs to serve him and be about him? And if it doesn't, I don't want it because I'm all about Jesus and that no matter the cost. What a call. Consider your boast. So again, we're thinking, we're, we're taking this big chapter on this morning. How do you respond to the reality that you've heard the gospel? The first one, consider Jesus. The second, consider your boast. Now the third, consider your Bible. Look at verse seven, Hebrews three, verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So here the author is gonna quote Psalm 95 at length. It goes in this chapter and the next. Uh, if you study Psalm 95, you know you could call it a historic psalm. That means, so a psalm is a song for all of God's people to sing as part of their worship. It's an invitation to their hearts for how they relate to God. And a historic psalm will, will look to the past and the lives of God's people and then make implications from that for the worship of the people today. And so Psalm 95 is a historic psalm. It, it looks to a previous generation of Israel, what they did, and gives lessons for the Israelites of the psalmist's day. We saw this this morning. It has three sections. There's a celebration of God. Come and sing. Be joyful. There's this privilege of belonging to God. We are his. And then from 7 to 11 is a warning about how your hearts are handling the message. But here what we need to see, the author of Hebrews does something amazing with this psalm. Again, look at just verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit, and what's that next word? Says. It's active. So someone's talking. Who's talking? The Holy Spirit is talking right now to you. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. The Holy Spirit's talking right now to you. Now, in many Christian subsections, if somebody starts to talk and says, I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. You don't know what you're going to get, do you? Uh, it could be uh, some sort of a feeling or a vision or an inclination or a wondering or a, 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 a surmising about something in the future. That's why this just, this is amazing to me. The author here says, the Holy Spirit is talking right now to you. And then what does he do? He quotes Psalm 95, which is hundreds and hundreds of years old. And it shows you his doctrine of the Bible. Yes, it's written by a bunch of human authors over a bunch of times and places, and it's a book, but it's, it's more than a book. It's inspired by God and therefore rightly understood God is always speaking from all of the Bible to you. That's amazing. That's what we're trying to get at right now as we sit and listen to a sermon. God is speaking, if we interpret this properly, with integrity, in a Christ-centered way. God is speaking to us now. And so, as we consider our Bible and the reality that God is talking to us about Jesus and our response to him from the Bible, that raises another question. How am I listening how am I listening? 
Because there's a little warning later in the chapter, is it Hebrews 3.16? Yeah. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? That's kind of the sorrow of this chapter. What is it really possible to do? It's really possible to hear and then rebel. You could hear God speak and turn the other way. Isn't that why Jesus is always saying, let him who has ears, let him hear. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And you're, you're thinking, well, what are you talking about? We all have ears. What he wants you to ponder is how you listen. Do you listen to the Bible and go, eh? Or do you listen with a humble heart in light of Christ and say, God, speak to me so that I can believe this and live it out? Be careful how you hear. Consider the Bible. Psalm 95, ultimately, the author here says, is talking to me and you today about how we respond to the message of Jesus Christ himself. Consider the Bible. Consider your heart. Let's get into what this psalm says. Just to back it up, consider how should we respond to the gospel? Consider Jesus. Consider your boast. Consider the Bible. Now consider your heart. Look at verses 7 to 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What's your heart about? It's not your aorta, right? What, what does the Bible mean by heart? It's your core self as shown by your view of what the good life is. It's your core self as shown by your deepest thoughts on life, your desires towards life. What do you love? How do you process life in light of what you love the most? And so then to to mix the metaphor, the text here says you can harden your own heart. What does that mean? Well, in context, we're thinking about how we listen And so a soft heart, listening to God's word, what is that like? It's a humble heart. It it wants to see Christ. It wants to trust. It wants to obey. That's a soft heart. So what's a hard heart look like? It's like a stubborn resistance. It's pushing things off to a distance. I'm not going to trust this. I'm not going to bet my life on this. I'm not going to obey this. And so this call in the psalm to the worshiping community, today, if you hear his voice, it's supposed to ring out, it rings out here in the book of Hebrews, it rings out to us, today, if you hear his voice. Are you hearing his voice? If I'm teaching this right, you are. Today, right now, if you hear his voice, this morning, don't harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. What's he talking about in the rebellion? Well, if you... I challenge you to do this today. Get your study Bible. Get a Bible with some references in it. If you don't have one, I'll, I'll get you one. And look up the references referred to in Psalm 95 and see how that one generation of Israelites did this. Look up Massah, Meribah. See, see how they hardened their hearts. Think of the context of these people. They went out of Egypt with Moses in light of just ridiculous miracles, right? They were miraculously cared for in the wilderness and they heard the law from Moses himself. And they saw things we can't imagine. They heard. And yet, what did they do, even as they heard? They hardened their hearts. And ultimately, this played out, as the psalm says, 
in this account in Numbers 14. So in Numbers 14, they, prom- they finally get to the land God had promised. And God has said, all right, let's go. It's time. I am going to be with you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to take you from slaves to, to thriving. I'm going to do it right now. And so he sends in 12, 12 leaders, right? One leader for each tribe. And when these 12 leaders come back, 10 say to the people, we cannot do this. 10 say to the people, God will not keep his word to us. God is not good. That's what they said to him. And now look at what the people said, Numbers 14, 2. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, this is horrible, isn't it? Would that we have died in the land of Egypt. Would that we have died in this wilderness. Verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. All the things they'd seen, all the things they'd heard. And you, you see right there a picture of their hearts. What was the picture of their heart towards God? I mean, it's as if they were saying, we wish we'd never met you. We wish you'd never come to us because you are so untrustworthy to us and so not valuable to us. We don't believe you. That's what they said. And look at God's response to them, Numbers 14, 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people, and what's that next word? Despise me. Friends, you are seeing the connection between God and his word. And if you despise God's promises in his words, in the sense that you're like, eh. If you despise his promises, he sees it as if you are doing what? You are despising him. That's why how we hear is so important. And so God's response to this people in Psalm 95, he's justifiably angry. Uh, Hebrews 3.10, then I was provoked with that generation. Provoked means disgusted. It's like I would just want to spit you out of my mouth. It's spoiled milk. Disgusted. And he gives them ultimately what they want. It's terrifying, isn't it? What they say in Numbers 14, we don't want you. And what does God say to that generation? Fine, don't have me. And you won't get into my rest. And you're not a part of my house. You're not a part of my house. But here's the dynamite application that the the audience of this book would have heard. Think about this. The author of of the book of Hebrews is saying to the recipients of this letter, if you're disgusted by how the Israelites wanted to leave Moses for Egypt, that's how God feels about you wanting to leave Jesus for Moses. Oh. That's you. Because you've heard the gospel. You've heard of Christ, the one whom Moses was speaking of. Oh, don't hard your hearts. And by the way, that would be us, to hear Christ, to profess faith in him, and then to not hold fast. To, to look at Christ and say, I don't, God, I don't believe you. I don't want it. It's so sober, isn't it? 
It's so sober. Now, if you're coming here, it's your first time to come to church, you're like, hold on. I don't understand half of what you're saying. You're telling me I'm wrong if I don't believe this. Listen, uh, we, want, we have every patience for you. We want, we want to explain the Bible, explain the gospel in every way that we can so that you can hear a coherent message of what God is saying. And uh, there's, there's, no, there's no hope in you just jumping over doubts that you legitimately have. We, you have to try to deal with those doubts. Um, this chapter is mainly given to people who have already been through that. And, and they, they've, they've heard and seen, and they've participated in the worshiping community. And then over time, they just say, I'm not that into Jesus anymore. That's who this chapter is for. And that kind of a thing provokes God. In fact, what do you think is worse to do? What do you think is worse to do? To get to the border of the promised land and say, take me back to Egypt, or to see who Jesus is and what he's done and hear his promises and say, I don't need him. Which do you think is worse? I guarantee the second is worse because Jesus is greater. Look at verses 12 to 13 then. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do you feel about this command? It's pushing me around. I'm feeling vulnerable. I'm feeling exposed. Take care. He's talking to you, right? He's talking to me, brothers and sisters, those who claim Christ. Lest there be in any of you, what kind of a heart? An evil, unbelieving heart. And the reason an unbelieving heart is evil is because it's heard God's word and despised it. And when you despise God's word, you're despising God. And and what's more evil than despising God? That, That is the core of evil. But look at that command, take care. What are you supposed to be looking at regularly if you're gonna respond to the gospel? You have to be looking not just at the gospel. You have to be looking at your own heart. You have to be asking yourself, what do I love the most and why? And how is it showing itself in my life? And where does Jesus fit into that? Because you have to, he warns us here of the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is is despising God. God, you're not good. Your word's not true. I'm going to replace you. And sin is deceitful. And you know this, don't you? I mean, I know this. Why, Why did I sin yesterday? You know, it's the stupid joke. If, if Satan came to you looking like a dragon, like drooling sulfur, saying, I'm going to ruin you, I want you to burn in hell forever, you wouldn't be like, oh, give me a hug, I love you. Get away. If we saw what sin really was when it came by, we'd be disgusted. But that's not how sin works, is it? How does temptation work for you? The last time I sinned, I sinned because it seemed blatantly obvious that this is the best thing to do to make me happy in the moment. Isn't that why you did it? It seemed blatantly obvious. You were totally justified rationalizing doing this. It seemed blatantly obvious that this choice is the best thing to do for you to be happy in that moment because sin deceived you. It lied to you. It told you that you're, you're happier looking away from Christ than looking to him. 
and you believed it. And you know what? If you practice that and you flirt with that, what happens to that heart? You make it hard. It's like rubbing glue on your heart thinking it's lotion. And it's just getting goopy. And it can't hear or see or care anymore. And, and God seems far away and distant and undesirable. And you're not interested in his word. And you're not thrilled by Jesus. He's not your boast or your confidence anymore. And you start to drift. You start to look for other things for your meaning, hope, identity, security, future. And you're moving on before you know it. It's like, I'm so, sorry, man. I, I, I'm just not into Jesus. I'm not into the Christian thing anymore. I've seen that happen. It happens. Watch your heart. And then this gets even worse. You're not only responsible to watch your heart, who else, who else's heart are you supposed to watch out for? Do you see what he said? Exhort one another every day. Now, does this mean you have to call everyone in the directory every day and make darn well sure, you know, they're looking to Jesus and fighting sin? But if we all did that, what a week that would be, right? On the phone all day long. But man, we've been thinking about Jesus in some way. <laughs> No, our, our problem is probably not overdoing it. Uh, maybe our problem is underdoing it. It's probably my problem. Isn't it kind of an awkward question to be like, so are you loving Jesus? Are you watching your heart? Like, would you want me to ask you that? Some of you would. Others of you are, are freaked out by the idea of anybody asking you that. Or you, even worse, maybe, is you asking someone else that question. Let's, let's just ask, do we love one another? Do you love me? What does it mean for you to love me? What does it mean for me to love you? It would mean that I care about you holding fast to Christ. A lot of other things as well, but especially that. I want you to hold fast to Christ and to know here that a danger is that your heart can get calcified and gummed up and hardened and that one way God gives us to remedy that is to not just take care of our own hearts, but to dig into one another's hearts. Are you, are you willing to engage in that? We've got to consider our hearts and how, we, and how we hear, don't we? As long as it is today. We've got to love one another in this way. You know, one reason you should go to a Bible-preaching, gospel-centered church, according to this passage, is so that you can stay a Christian. Did you hear that? Church is about staying a Christian, because your heart needs to hear it again. Growth groups are part of this. Small groups get together. Let's talk about how we're following Christ. But ultimately, you can't program this, right? Is it the culture of your life to want to listen to somebody and share yourself in this way where you could measure one of those hearts before the gospel? It's a level of trust here, a level of relationship here. I guess I'll just ask you to do this. Think of one person this week that you might need to talk to in this way. If you get the inclination you're worried about somebody's heart, call them. Don't do it in self-righteousness, like you know everything, all that in a bag of chips. That's not true. Do it humbly. Do it in love. Because you realize this is part of how God keeps his people, is his people exhorting his people. All right, let's move on. Two more points. 
Consider Jesus, consider your boast, consider the Bible, consider your heart, now consider your faith. Look at verses 14 and 19. Especially 14, he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Which is amazing language on how this works. Think of the phrase, we have come to share in Christ. So what perspective is that looking to? Past tense. I'm in Hebrews, I'm sorry, I'm in Hebrews 3, 14. We have come to share in Christ. How do you know you have come, past tense? Right here in the book, verse 14. If we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do you see what he's saying? The knowledge that your past engagement was, with Christ was real is shown by your future endurance with Christ. That's why we believe in perseverance of the saints. It's not to say that Christians don't have really low times in their lives sometimes. It seems like they're seriously backing away. But it's to say they will come back. And in general, they will endure in holding fast to their confidence in the gospel, no matter the cost, to the end. So consider your faith. Is it an enduring faith? Because then in verses 15 to 18, he's in Psalm 95 again. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts in the rebellion. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Here's the idea. It's really easy to participate in a religious community, always be hearing the truth and not actually believe it or endure in it. And so consider your faith. Are you in this for the long haul? Do you love Jesus more than anything? Yes, imperfectly. Yes, you have a lot to learn, but are you sticking? God willing, let's stick, no matter the cost. Let's hold fast to the end. Because you see verse 19, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's wrap this up. We've seen five points so far on how to respond to the gospel. Consider Jesus, consider your boast, consider the Bible, consider your heart, consider your faith. Here's one more. I realize this is a massively challenging text. Uh, It's full of all sorts of Bible stuff that can seem confusing. It's also just digging at your heart, right? It can unsettle you. What are we supposed to do with warnings like these? Well, in one sense, God uses this to kind of wake up the sleeper, right? If you were drifting, if your heart was being hardened, you hear this and you go, ah, I I gotta do something. I gotta care. I gotta be alive. I gotta be awake. And that's good. It's important. That's what it's for. But the sensitive conscience, I think, could also hear this as, oh my gosh, God has left me to my own way and my own strength and my own devices, and if I don't follow him good enough, he doesn't love me anymore. And I bet some of you are kind of feeling it or hearing it like that. Oh my gosh, God has set the standard, and now if I don't follow him or believe in him enough or do it right, I, I, won't, I won't make it. And, and you're feeling, now I'm saved by works. And that is not what the author means in any way, shape, or form. To hold, to hold fast to your confession is to rejoice in the fact that you're not saved by your works, but you're saved by Jesus Christ himself. And I want to show you the author's thinking this, because his section here goes two chapters, three and four. We just did three today. Look at the end of chapter four, Hebrews 4, 14. This is the last thing you need to consider in light of hearing the gospel. Consider the throne. I want you to consider the throne The throne is where God is king. Look at Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have 
a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So look, Jesus sympathizes with you in your toil, in your struggle, in your difficulty, in the fight. And he's a great high priest. He's come to be with us, to be like us, to die, to rise. He reigns. He intercedes. Here's the point, verse 16. Because we have Christ, let us then with what? With confidence. It's a boldness. It's a courage. With confidence, do what? Draw near to the throne of, it's a throne of what? Grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're like, Lord, I'm drifting, I'm weak, I need your help. It's hard for me. I've failed, forgive me. The call, draw near. Because you have Jesus. Draw near. God's throne is one of grace and mercy to see you in your need and to give you what you need at just the right time. And so really we come full circle. Because what the author's doing here in Hebrews 4 is he's saying, look at Jesus the priest. Look at, look at Jesus the priest and where he brings you. He brings you to God's throne and it's now a throne of grace because of who he is and what he's done. And so you see we've come full circle. What was it? Consider Jesus... Consider your bows, consider the Bible, consider your heart, consider your faith, and one more, consider Jesus again. Consider Jesus again. And because of what he's done, who the Father is to you, draw near to God through him. Draw near to God through him. One way to sum up a long sermon. The response to the gospel is to draw near to God again through Jesus. Let's do that, and let's help one another do that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. There's so much here. I pray, God, that as we think about what you've said to us and that we've heard the gospel, Lord, that our hearts would be drawn to respond in a certain way, that we wouldn't just See it once, let it pass by, and move on with life. Oh, no, that it would own us, that it would grab us, that we would consider Jesus, consider our bows, consider your word, our hearts, our faith, all the rest, that Jesus would be best to us, and we would never want to leave him for anything or anyone because he's made us your house, and we're your children through him. Lord, if we're not Christians today, save us. If we are Christians today, keep us. Keep us drawing near for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.